Welcome to Arts for the Health of It, a podcast where you will discover creative ways to improve your health and well-being. Someone may have told you that art isn't for you, but they were wrong. Anyone can create arts for the health of it. No talent or experience necessary. I'm just a little songbird. Try to fly my way homeward with the melody and I make the beat. Don't know where it'll take me, take me. Cause when I'm in the dark of night, I sing my way back to the light. Come along with me and your heart will see that a song changes everything. Oh, oh. I'm your host, Richard Wilmore. And I'm your co-host, Constanza Rader. And we have an amazing guest today. Um, we have Andrea Carter-Brown, who is a poet, and it wrote a whole book of poetry that was published um, last year for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And it's, she's a survivor of 9-11, and she kind of processed her, that experience um, through poetry. And I just want to read a little description of her book, which is September 12th. Um, it says the 20th anniversary of 9-11-2001 sees Andrea Carter Brown gathering her work into one devastating bouquet of terror, survival, grief, and recovery. From stark moment-to-moment narrative of the flight from her apartment one block from the towers through the poems of loss and recovery, her honesty refuses simple answers and refuses to prettify. Bracketed by poems that celebrate the beauty of New York and the life that followed, Brown pulls us through the arteries of trauma to a wise and astonished consciousness of what it means to heal, to sing again. So this is who we're talking with today. Let's bring her out. And I love... Yes. Did you read her bio or was that? No, no, no. You, go for it. You it can was like you, I, That's I, just I, the like book need her out here right now. Andrea, where I, are I'm just we? excited. <laughs> so Andrea Carter Brown's new collection, which we talked about of award-winning poetry, September 12th was published for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Her previous collections are Domestic Karma, The Disheveled Bed and Brook and Rainbow. She's been very busy. Her poems have won awards from Five Points, River Sticks, the MacGuffin and PSA and are cited in the Library of Congress online guide to the poetry of 9-11. Formerly a founding editor of Barrow Street, she has been series editor of the WordWorks Washington Prize since 2017, and she's an avid birder, which I used to make fun of them until I got a bird feeder. She lives in Los Angeles, where she grows lemons, limes, oranges, and tangerines in her backyard. So it's basically, I want to be here when I grow up, because that's the life. (laughs) I want. So let's take, uh, let's bring her out here. Please say hello to Andrea Carter Brown. Hi there. Hi, Andrea. I'm going to move you over. Very nice to be with you today. We're excited to have you. The splendid introductions. So um, I would wish anybody the chance to grow citrus in his or her Mm. or their backyard, which the birds actually love. So when they're flowering. So. So you get the birds and and the citrus. Nice. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to get work done. (laughs) Can you see it from your office? I'm looking out on the the navel orange tree, which is just bowed down with so many oranges. Uh, We don't really do anything to it. We try to grow it 
naturally, organically, and it just every December, <laughs> it gets filled up with orange globes, which I must <laughs> say are, are just finally ripe enough to eat. And they're, you know, it's pretty wonderful to pick, you know, anybody who gardens if, and grows food, if you harvest your own, it always tastes better than anything you can buy. <laughs> always. <laughs> that is so true. So, when did you move to California? We moved to California in the fall of 2004. Uh, we moved here because we could not put our life back together in mm -hmm. New York. And this was the place where we could both work. And uh, we knew some people out here and uh, California has been good to us. I'm not, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that if we hadn't moved here and we didn't have a, a home that feels like um, an oasis, a safe place, this book would never have been written hmm. because uh, I think, you know, it helps to feel safe to go to deep, dark subjects um, and one of the things that 9-11 took away from us and many other people was the idea that your home is a safe place. Mm. Wow. So, I, so I was, you were in New York for 9-11. I was in California for 9-11 and, you know, I was in high school when it happened. Um, but you had a very different, you were there, um, would you mind sharing a little bit about about your that experience that really inspired this book? Sure. Um, I we lived in an apartment a block as the crow flies west of the World Trade Center site. Uh, I was in the apartment that morning, sort of getting ready to go to work, and um, the phone rang at about nine o'clock. And it was my sister in North Carolina. And her first words were, are you okay? Hmm. And I said, sure, because I was. I hadn't heard anything. I was completely unaware that the North Tower had been hit by this plane. Hmm. But I ran to the other end of the room, which was the living room. And I looked out the picture window and I could see the North Tower on fire. Hmm. And I could see some pretty horrible things. Um, I saw people jumping. I saw parts of the building falling. I saw huge columns of smoke rising. I saw flames coming out of windows. And I immediately knew that the tower would fall. Mm -hmm. uh, and I felt I had to flee because if it fell, it would crush everything anywhere near it. And um, so one foot in dirty clothes with a dead cell phone or an almost set dead cell phone. I fled south. Um, if I had fled north, I would have had to go very close to the towers. And I was afraid of being hit by something that was falling. Mm -hmm. uh, so I by going south, I ended up on the Staten Island Ferry which took me to Staten Island. And from there, via a very 
complicated fruit. Uh, I ended up 12 hours later in Westchester, um, where my husband coincidentally was on a, on a, for a business meeting. Hmm. Uh, normally that morning at the time of the attacks, he would have been going through the, the concourse under the World Trade Center to catch the subway to go to work. But we were lucky. We were lucky in a oh. lot of ways. Um, so that's the story of that day. And it took, life afterwards was very difficult, but of course we were alive. So it's very hard to complain about those things. Um, everything was disrupted. Um, I got very sick from exposure to the dust that morning. Mm. Uh, I got asthma, which I never had before. I had various other things. Um, we, we couldn't move back into our apartment until for six months. So we lived as displaced people in various places. Uh, when we moved back, there was still no heat in the buildings. Uh, not all of the appliances had been replaced. Um, there was no place to buy food. There was no public transportation. So it felt like um, everything was difficult. On top of that, there were a lot of tourists coming to the site. They wanted to see it. They wanted to pay homage. Uh, so I felt like I was living in a in a in a goldfish bowl, hmm. which felt like a violation again. Anyway, we we stayed. We tried to put our apartment back together after having thrown out the various things that had to be thrown out, and having it cleaned repeatedly and the air tested repeatedly. Hmm. Um, in the complex where we lived, which was called Gateway Plaza, for anybody who knows that area, on on September 10th, there were 5,500 residents in three towers and three wings that connected them. And the following June, only 500 of us had moved out, moved back, and everyone else left. Hmm. So it was a ghost town, literally and figuratively. Um, eventually we decided to move away because we realized it was going to take many years for the neighborhood, our neighborhood that had been destroyed to resume anything resembling normal activity. Hmm. And, um, we felt a little guilty for leaving for a while, it felt like abandoning a wounded beloved mm. because, because you love your neighborhood. Uh, you can have mixed feelings about it, but you love it. And um, But there was no, for us, for me who had been there and uh, for my husband who had a lot of experience going back to the apartment to deal with FEMA and the Red Cross and the insurance adjuster and the air quality testers and the cleaners. 
he had to do that because my doctors wouldn't allow me to go back once I got so sick. Mm -hmm. uh, um, both of us had memories that wouldn't go away. And um, even as the area slowly came back to life, people moved into the apartments. We got a supermarket. Eventually the bank opened. <laughs> um, a restaurant opened. Man, that was, that got a lot of business from the 500 of us that were, were there, especially the bar, I have to say. But at least there was a place to go that felt communal and, mm. you know. It turned into an episode of Cheers. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> but we were trying for Cheers. Yeah. That's a good, good word to insert. And... Um, and over the course of the two years, two and a half years, we uh, sometimes people would visit because we had friends who had been to our home before and they wanted to see what had happened for themselves. Um, but eventually it just, we realized that it was time for us to move on. There was a sort of um, a sense that in order for the neighborhood to come back, it needed people who were not, people living there who were not burdened by memories. Mm. And we needed new memories. Mm. So one morning at the same table where I was reading the paper and drinking coffee when my sister called on 9-11, my husband looked at me and he said, is this working for you? <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't take me but a, a couple seconds pause to say no. And within six weeks, we had mm, given away maybe half of our possessions. And we moved lock, stock and barrel to California, to Southern California thinking that if we didn't do it completely, we would never reroute ourselves. Hmm. And, um, and uh, it was a good decision. It was feeling at home when you make a midlife change is not automatic or easy. Um, but eventually it happens and, um, and the last section of the book are poems. It's called The Present, hmm. named after that sort of cliche, every day is a gift. That's why we call it The Present. <laughs> um, yeah. And those poems all take place in California, Southern California, where I live now. Uh, and many of them have ghosts of 9-11 in them, but also have birds and and citrus trees and um, drought, <laughs> which is something we've been living with here. So, um, wow. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Andrea. That's a lot of hard stuff to revisit. And I think that's, um, you know, it's helpful to have that context when we approach your poetry and the stories that you tell. Um, so thank you so much for sharing. 
I appreciate that. Thank you for asking. You said that you didn't uh, write the book until after you had moved to California. How were you, or maybe you weren't processing your life in New York after that happened? Were you writing during that time anyway? Were you doing other arts? Were you, I mean, and also, I guess during something like this, you can't just pick up a paintbrush and then everything is better. There are also, you know, actual <laughs> therapy and ways to deal with things other than a paintbrush. But I'm curious kind of, or if you were just trying to like get through every day at that point. Um, I mean this, what a terrific question. Um, unlike a lot of other artists, who immediately picked up paintbrush or sat at their laptops and started writing, I was completely stopped for mm. over six months. I didn't write a word. Uh, not, not because I didn't want to, but because I couldn't. I, I think to write... You, for me anyway, I have to believe that writing fulfills itself in communication. And communication is about finding commonality across our differences. And what happened the morning of 9-11 when those planes flew into the towers and all those people died completely severed my confidence that we could share in sharing stories and sharing our impressions that we could reach other people or other people could reach us. Hmm. So it was a, it was a crisis of faith actually. And, um, and I felt guilty that I couldn't write because I was a published poet and I lived very close. I lived closer than anyone else I know in New York City who is a poet. And I was there and I thought, well, if anybody is writing about this, I should write about it. I have the tools, mm. but I could not do it. Uh, the following spring, I got invited to contribute to an anthology of people who were directly affected by the event, who lived in New York. And I very quickly wrote two poems. But then I didn't write again until the following spring. So it was 18 months of, of uh, not being able to express this. But I already knew that I wanted to, and that this was, to, to sound corny, this was my purpose as a writer. Whether you consider yourself a musician or not, music is all around us, and it affects our everyday lives. Whether it's background music influencing our shopping habits in a store, organ music adding the vibe to a baseball game, or a playlist convincing us to keep going on that last mile of a run. 
I am Mindy Peterson, host of the podcast Enhanced Life with Music, where we take a holistic look at the power of music in our everyday lives through the lens of science and health, sports and entertainment, business and education. You can find me and Enhanced Life with Music at mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast or wherever you get your audio. Unleash the power of music. Make your day richer with The Richard Wilmore Show. Meet amazing musicians, talented actors, brilliant authors, hilarious comedians, and the most creative people in entertainment. Download the KP Media TV app to watch on Apple TV, Roku, and Amazon Fire. Medical professionals are burning out at an alarming rate. Burnout can cause health workers to feel hopeless, trapped, helpless, worthless, depressed, sleepless, and tired. By joining the Hearts Need Art Gratitude Grams program, Medical staff receive a personalized email and video from a musician, an artist, or writer once a week that includes a message of thanks, an encouraging song, uplifting poem, or a simple art activity. After watching their gratitude gram, participants report feeling more hopeful, empowered, energized, and appreciated. If you are or know a healthcare worker that would like to receive free gratitude grams, please visit heartsneedart.org. But the second half of the story is that to write about such difficult material involves learning new skills, learning new strategies of dealing with the stress of going back to this place and writing about it. So I was writing before we moved to California. Uh, And... um, struggling with how best to express this material. And part of the struggle involved, uh, as you said, um, the difficulty of going there to sort of re-inhabiting the experience and the emotional response to the experience. And I discovered uh, that every time I spent a day writing, I got sick afterwards. Physically, this the asthma kicked up, I coughed, I started getting a rash on my throat, um, which was one of the common side effects of touching the dust. And then if you touched yourself, your skin got irritated. And so I had to learn how to um, pace myself. First, I had to learn to accept that this was happening. I was horrified. Hmm. Why am I putting myself through this? And yet I had to keep writing it. Um, And um, it was a long time before my writing captured to my satisfaction the experience. Hmm. And, um, and it was an even longer time before the shape of the book came to me. And um, that happened... Um, when I learned that I I grew up in a small 
suburban town which funneled commuters to Wall Street. I lived in, it was called Glenrock, New Jersey. Um, my father was a teacher and my mother worked in the library. So that wasn't my experience, but it was all of my friends' fathers. I'm sorry to say it was their fathers, not their mothers, who left every morning on the 802 to Hoboken and came home every night on the 612. Uh, well, 11 of them hadn't come home that morning mm-hmm. in a very small town. And I started thinking about the fact that they could have been the parents of my friends when I was growing up, Hmm. the fathers of my friends. There was one woman who died that morning. Um, And I started learning about them. And when I explored that, what it did was it opened up the material personally to me beyond my experience and it infused my writing with a sense of a larger tragedy that I wanted to um, give voice to. Mm. Wow. That took a lot of bravery to keep going back to that kind of dark well to bring these stories out. Um, and yeah, I think it is important. I think that's one of the roles that artists play in our culture is to articulate our collective stories. And that's kind of what you've done, um, in this book. What, what kind of responses have you received from, from your poetry and from this work? I've been overwhelmed by the responses. Hmm. Uh, people from all over the world, from all walks of life, who have had who had direct experiences, indirect experiences, who weren't born yet, mm-hmm. who were in high school at the time and are upset that this event, what why was this event so important? Mm-hmm. Um, because to them it was just something that their parents were upset about more than what they were upset about. Hmm. Um, In California, like in Texas, there are a lot of military bases because it's the desert. It's the training. It was the training ground for all of the wars that we launched after 9-11 in response to 9-11, partly. So many of the um, people out here Uh, who weren't alive that day or don't have memories of it, do know soldiers have relatives in their family who served in the Middle East, some of whom died, some of whom were injured traumatically. And uh, so that's their experience of 9-11. I I recently uh, heard from someone who was a friend in college um, that his brother escaped from the towers that morning. Wow. Um, And he and I have been in touch. Um, I, as I, as I might have said before um, or earlier, I, I think People 
did not tell their stories about 9-11. And uh, we, we all sort of kept it to ourselves, many of us. It was a tragedy. It's very hard to talk about death, period. It's hard to talk about illness, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of all the things that have happened in this country and around the world, natural disasters, human disasters, war, refugees, immigrants, um, the loss of 9-11 seems sort of small hmm. in that totality. And yet it feels to me like the beginning of that period, the sort of event which unleashed many, many problems. Hmm. And um, one of the things that has made... Um, for me, this book more relevant is COVID. Um, And in some ways, the things that I had to deal with and learn about after 9-11 prepared me for COVID of all the crazy things to say. Oh, wow. Um, Tell us more about that. Well, number one, after 9-11, we were afraid of the air. Mm. we were didn't know what was in it we now know that there was a lot of toxic material in it um and there's a tremendous amount of illness which is uh which is still uh affecting many people who were nearby on top of that uh the fabric of our lives was interrupted. As I said before, it was like living in a ghost town. So the normal interactions that we think of as day-to-day life were thinned out to such a degree that you felt very alone. Mm. And the third element is that the government really didn't know what it was dealing with And it's the information that it gave us. I don't say that from the point of view of the government, there was bad faith. But, for example, um, everyone knows that asbestos, breathing in asbestos, will kill you eventually. And the government repeatedly tested and said, there's no asbestos, there's no asbestos. Well, turns out, They didn't have testing devices which could detect fine enough particles that the the devastation that incinerated things to such a degree that we weren't capable of detecting what there was. Mm. So, um, and then on top of that, so you felt... um, you know, your your own logic was telling you, well, this is, I'm living next to a Superfund site. It's also a sacred site because many people died and their remains are what's, the dust of the site is what remains of them. But um, 
but it's also highly toxic. And um, then, so there was that. And then on top of that, there were the business interests, which were mostly interested in making money again. So for example, we were, we were uh, renters and our landlord was not allowed to charge us rent until the apartment was called habitable. That meant that he had to remediate the building and the individual apartments, which involved a very uh, lengthy process of multiple cleanings. He was supposed to remove all of the carpeting in the hallways. He was supposed to flush out the air ventilation systems. He had to replace the refrigerators and uh, the, the heating and the air conditioning units, which were not able to be remediated was the word. Um, well, they cut corners and they, they had people do the cleaning who didn't know how to clean properly and who weren't protected the way they should have been protected. Uh, and that was the source of additional grief that people were not doing right by the situation. Um, so, uh, you know, we eventually moved back. I mean, we were lucky. We had insurance which paid for us to live somewhere else for until my doctors told me I could move back, which was in early March. Um, I don't remember where I was. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's, this is the nature of living through something like this. There are many rabbit holes that you go down. And the secret is not to lose yourself in them. That kind of brings me sort of to what you say that you use the arts to sustain, enrich, distract, and restore yourself. And I'm wondering how this book, writing this book, did those things for you. Okay. It gave me a purpose. It gave me a, it gave me something to do which I could uh, use to structure my time when the writing went well, which it sometimes does and did, I would lose myself in what I was doing. And believe it or not, when, when I was writing about this material, uh, I felt I was creating something out of it, that it wasn't just loss, it wasn't just destruction, it was something out of nothing. Um, and uh, for example, uh, while I was writing the poems about my experience that day and in the aftermath couple of years, it occurred to me that I needed to write about what the world was like before 9-11 there mm. because 
if there's loss, there's something that's been lost. So I wrote, there's a whole, the whole first section of the book is about living on the Hudson, along the Hudson River in that there's a narrow strip of land between the skyscrapers in downtown Manhattan where the World Trade Center was and the Hudson River. And that was where we lived. So it was this strange natural world and urban world. Um, and I, that was a great, I loved writing about that. And I was able to find the poems that I had written about that or to write the poems about aspects of that, which conveyed the beauty and the richness of, um, of that life. Um, and there's, a, there's also the aspect of preserving what memory will lose by writing about it. Hmm. Um, I don't, I mean, I, I lived with this material writing about it. Uh, people would ask me why, why are you still working on it? <laughs> why do you go there? Um, but this day changed me and I wanted to understand how it changed me, why it changed me. And, um, and finishing the book has given me a measure of peace. I guess that's the right word um, that I don't think I would have if I hadn't explored it so thoroughly and so deeply. Wow. Is there a particular poem from your book that you would like to share with us? Yeah, I'll read a poem called Get Over It. It's from the aftermath section. Um, it's about something that happened to me the first time we went back to our apartment to get papers and medicines uh, on the Saturday after 9-11, which was, uh, so get over it. John J. Paliza, PhD, has copyrighted this little gem of advice. It says so at the bottom. A small piece of tape still sticks to the top. You can picture it in some office cubicle next to the computer. On our first trip back four days later, we find it on the sidewalk below our apartment, torn but intact, gritty with dust. By what miracle has this six by nine oak tag card survived? From which floor did it fall or float down? 
whose office did it adorn? What happened to him or her? Years later, we are trying to get over it. How can people best reach you? Well, I have a website with a contact page on it, and those emails will reach me. Um, and I'm happy to hear from people. Uh, uh, I'm very happy to hear from people. <laughs> I, I've been surprised to what degree people find my story helpful. Hmm. Oh, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me at all. I'm sure that you're putting words to people's experiences that they might not have been able to articulate themselves. So um, is there any practical advice you might give someone listening that might want to explore writing their own stories or their own experiences? What worked for me, what worked for me is to carry a little notebook around with me and something to write with. That way, anything that caught caught my attention could be an overheard sentence, a word that I had forgotten existed that I thought was a very cool word. Um, it could be my thoughts. It could be something I observed. Um, I never was very good at keeping a diary, um, even as a teenager. Even I had all those little books with the little locks on them, and, and I had secrets, but <laughs> I, I wasn't comfortable writing them down because I thought that putting it in a book made it more substantial, and I felt pressure. So I, I buy these little notebooks that fit in my bag or might even fit in my back, my back pocket. And I try never to be anywhere without it. I never know what might grab my attention. It could be there, there's periods when there's days and weeks where I write a lot. And then there might be three or four months when nothing is hitting me, nothing is arresting me. But this serves as a record of what's going on inside of you. Um, what you're responding to, what you're, what's in your life. And that, I think, validates your experience. Hmm. And I think validating your experience without putting pressure on yourself to make something from it is useful as um, a confidence um, restorer. Hmm. That's good. Oh, thank you so much for talking with us, Andrea. Did you have any other questions? look like Richard was going to say something. I mean, I have all kinds of questions, but this is one of those <laughs> where we could be here for 12 hours again. Uh, but, and I'm happy to do that. Uh, but yes, thank you I, for sharing your story with us. 
And what I was going to say with you writing, having a notebook with you that like everybody has a notebook in their phone. So like I would have a hard time carrying around a notebook and a pen all the time because I don't have anything to put it in but my pockets, but there's always a notebook. I must have phone. 200 texts sitting mm-hmm. on my phone. I write myself so Sometimes that's what I have. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Like, oh, hold on. I need to email myself that. And that's where I keep all my notes. And then I can yeah. go back and put them where they need to go. So yeah, just throwing that out there that you don't need thank a notebook. You for, thank you for mentioning that because it doesn't have to be a physical notebook. Yeah. But it, the important thing is to honor your thoughts by keeping a record of them. Hmm. That's so good. Yep. The book is called September 12th. It's available on Andrea's website or Amazon. Um and make sure you go order it right now. Andrea uh, Carter-Brown, thank you so much for being here. Thank you both so much. This was uh, a pleasure and an incredibly important function that you're doing with this. I really believe in it, and I'm honored to be included as a guest on your show. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Andrea. Make sure you subscribe. Now this is the weird part. After that, we're after be like, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Um, <laughs> but make sure you do, please. And yes. uh, we'll be back next time. Keep creating, everyone. We will see you when we see you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Arts for the Health of It, a podcast produced by Hearts Need Art, creative support for patients and caregivers in partnership with the National Organization for Arts and Health. You can help others learn about the healing power of the arts by subscribing, sharing, and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen or watch. The podcast is hosted by Richard Wilmore, co-hosted by Constanza Rader. Our theme song, Songbird, is written and performed by Natalie Lane. Visit heartsneedart.org to learn how you can support our mission to create joy with people facing life-altering health challenges. Join us next week to learn more ways you can create arts for the health of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Heartstein Art, their staff, board members, or other affiliates. All content is created for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice or to diagnose and treat any health condition. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health professional with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you heard on this podcast.